Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to Voices from the Real World. Profile Theater is a theater company located in Portland, Oregon. Profile Theater centers the season around a season-long featured writer. Our best artists help us see. And at Profile, each year, we use a different writer's unique perspective as a lens that helps us see our shared world in new and surprising ways. Community Profile is an affinity space built around the structure of a free writing workshop. Participants in Community Profile meet, write, support, share, and bear witness to other people who may have walked a mile in their shoes. In Community Profile, we feature writers who have won awards and had numerous books published, as well as writers who are making their first foray into expressing themselves on paper. The result is writing that is singularly personal, provocative, powerful, moving, funny, tragic, beautiful, and that encapsulates the entirety of the human experience. What this podcast does is give those writers, those creators, a chance to share their life stories and their writing in a public forum so that we can celebrate and appreciate victories that have been won and challenges that have been overcome by people whose lives you may recognize or be experiencing for the very first time. Uh, greetings, Earthlings. Um, I am here with Anya Pearson. Uh, I have known Anya for over a decade now, and um, in that time, uh, she has grown and evolved and hustled and kicked ass in a thousand ways and has become um, one of Portland's more renowned women of letters. Um, and it's been a real like honor, um, to watch your journey, you know, and, uh, and just like see how much elbow grease you put into it and, um, uh, how much you are reaping what you yourself are sowing. Um, so I Pearson, welcome to, to, uh, voices from the real world. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Bobby. Okay, Anya, um, I've known you for a long time, but a lot of our listeners might not. Uh, so if you could tell me a little bit about uh, who you are and where you come from originally, kind of thing. Sure. Uh, my name is Anya. Hi, everyone. Um, I am what I guess we call these days a multi-hyphenate. Um, a friend of mine, Ella, says the term multi-potentialate, which I also really like. So <laughs> I am an actor. I am a writer. I write plays, poetry, screenplays, working on my first novel, just finished my first collection of poetry. Uh, I produce a little bit. Um, uh, social justice and activism is a big part of my work, so that's always uh, on the forefront of my creating. Uh, I have a production company. I also draw. I work for a writing center. Basically, all the things that have to do with heart, art, I am like, I want a piece of them. Right. Yeah. Right. And you are, uh, you're not from Oregon. I'm not. I'm from the Bay Area. Right. I knew yeah. that, right? California. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so tell me about that journey. Um, uh, Basically, I was in high school, and my mom, uh, her job transferred her up to Oregon. So that's how I first uh, landed up here. Um, it was not a pleasant <laughs> uh, journey at first. I had, like, reverse culture shock because the Bay Area is so diverse. I wasn't aware of, oh, right. of how course. homogenous it is um, in Oregon, which is something that comes up in my work. Um, so then I went back to California, and then I bounced around the country nomadically, going to a bunch of different schools. Um, but my mom was always here, so I always just kept coming back to Portland. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I, I, it has become home. Great. Great. That's awesome. Okay, but it's like when I first met you, I feel like you were more of, you were more actor. 
Yes. You know, um, and since then, like, you've been going more and more, like, writing has has become a larger part of what you're doing and, and how you are making your presence known in the world. Can you tell me a little bit about that journey, how that happened? Yeah. I mean, I think they always happen side by side, but for a while sure. it was not confident enough to share my writing with the world. Um, and then I'm sure you can identify with this. I started to reach a point as an actor where I was very uh, dissatisfied or unsatisfied with the, the type of roles that were being offered to me. Um, and their kind of either lack of dimensionality or multifaceted human nature. And so I was like, well, if I don't see the roles I want, then I'm going to just start writing them. And so that's how I started kind of putting my work out into the world is because I wanted there to be more diverse, meaty, like human roles for actors of color, specifically black actors. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, now, because I feel like it, like you is like starting off with a bang with Made to Dance, but Made to Dance is probably not like was, was was that the first play that you had produced? Yeah. Yeah, um, which uh, your lovely partner directed, Jamie Ray. Shout out to Jamie. Um, and that one was really like a, a an odyssey of a journey because I started writing Made to Dance, even though I didn't know that's what I was writing when I was 17. When I was in high school, hmm. my uh, AP Black Lit teacher uh, introduced us to some of the most phenomenal black writers, and one of them was Entozaki Shange. And uh, For Color Girls literally kept me alive, and I knew that I wanted to be able to write something that expressed my experience, but for girls of the next generation, in the same way that, um, that really, I mean, it's not hyperbole. Entozaki Shange's work is the reason that I am still here with uh, in the world, basically. And so um, I set out to write something that talked about the kind of hellish journey that I had gone through as a survivor. Um, and before I even knew that it was going to be made to dance, I knew that I wanted to write it. I knew I wanted to have a collection of poetry that went with it. And I knew I wanted to make a documentary about what it is like to be a survivor of color. Um, and it took me 20 years, uh, but I finally landed on a draft of Made to Dance that I was happy with. And Jamie and I worked really closely together for about two and a half years, um, developing it and shaping it and honing it. And um, we had a workshop at Portland Playhouse and then a showcase at Joe's Pub um, in New York at the Public Theater. And then the world premiere was at Shaking the Tree. And that play, I, rem- I remember uh, when I went to go see it. And uh, one of the beautiful things about theater, of course, is that it's about um, is that it's live. And w- and what that means that is different, I feel like, is that the- is that the audience is part of the spell being cast. You know, um, and and you know, like like the artist kind of creates a container for the spell, but the audience is is almost like the one who delivers it. And just like. Um, when I went to go see it and, and, and in the weeks, like when that run was going on, I would run into people, you know, women, yeah, you know, who were like, uh, you know, I mean, I literally heard somebody say this, Anya Pearson is a genius, you know, Aww. you know, that play really like touched me. That really, that play really spoke to me. I can only imagine that you heard a lot of that yourself, uh, when that play was produced. Yeah, I did. It's, um, so for those that aren't familiar with the play, uh, Made to Dance in Burning Buildings, which Bobby's 
partner directed, as I mentioned, is is kind of like a, it, it is a choreo poem, so it's in conversation with Ntozaki Shange's seminal work for Colored Girls, which is going to be on Broadway next year. Sorry, I'm really excited about that. Um, That's really uh, exciting, is it? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, and Camille Brown is directing it. Well. Yeah, I'm so excited. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, sorry momentary gushing over Camille Brown, who is just a phenomenal choreographer and director. Um, so Bay to Dance is basically the story. It is a fictionalized version of what I went through as a survivor of rape. Um, and the way that it's structured is there is five women who represent the different facets of the personality of the woman who is trying to find her way back from basically the hell that exists after your um, sexually assaulted. And then there are five dancers who kind of represent the physicalization of her journey to attempt um, to find some kind of healing. So the main character who doesn't speak, she um, was played by this beautiful dancer named Amber Bates, who kind of physically manifests the journey of the body. And then these women who poetically in her head trying to find a way to put back the kind of fragmented experience that she's living. Um and it was really a profound experience. It was very hard, obviously, very surreal to be living out the kind of worst experience of my life that I still reckon with on a daily basis. Um, but every night, even before I could get out of costume and get off the stage, at least four people would tell me how much it meant to them, how much it described accurately the journey of what it's like to be a survivor, because unfortunately, there are so many of us who are. Um, and so I would have these amazingly powerful conversations each night with women of all ages, all socioeconomic backgrounds, all races, even some men about uh, the profound experience of what it meant to see someone give voice to what it means to be a survivor. Right. And when you talk about Ntozaki Shanga, I feel like when you uh, read the play or you see, or you see uh, Made to Dance in Burning Buildings, you can see the direct line. You know, um, you can see that um, you are another step along that path. Uh, and I think that's uh, really remarkable. It's so crazy to me, like when you said out loud that uh, the main character never spoke. Yeah. And I was like, wait, what? Oh, right. I guess she didn't. She was just <laughs> dancing. Yeah. You know, um, but yeah, it was it was everybody else who had the language and the poetry. Um, uh, made the Dance also had um, some hip hop in it. Um, if you could tell me about how that happened. Yeah, so um, like a third of the narrative of Made to Dance is told solely through dance, which is, you know, definitely not typical of a kind of straight play with a rising action, climax, falling action kind of storyline. Um, and that was very intentional because um, there, I, I am a firm believer in the fact that even though I am a lover of language and I salivate over words and I'm a word nerd, that there are some experiences that just can't adequately be described through language, no matter how beautiful or ornate or poetic or lyrical or even abrupt the language is. Um, it just can't fully describe some of the atrocities that unfortunately we experience um, as human beings or that we perpetrate on other human beings. And so uh, I knew from the very beginning that I wanted the physical journey of her finding wholeness in her body to be through physicalization and dance. And, um, Along the way, uh, like I, I, I knew that I wanted the way that the assault was manifested to be through dance and also the kind of end result of her conquering, um, not conquering her demons, but kind of conquering and reclaiming 
her body and herself to be physical. Um, and there is a, a style of dance called a posh, which I got really obsessed with after watching the video, um, Pink's video, Try, um, which it's a Parisian style of dance that basically depicts a man trying to destroy a woman. Uh, it's from the turn of the century. And that felt really interesting to me to be the style of dance that kind of communicated and held the violence. Um, and from that, kind of as a spinoff, whenever we see the ringleader and the sidekick assassins, who are the people that hurt her, basically, um, hip hop and kind of a little bit of crump and that kind of style of dance felt like a really great juxtaposition to the more lyrical contemporary movements of, that um, the main character Ava does with her first love. And it's like the, because hip hop's more jerky, it's more like hard hitting, it's more like fully embodied in an aggressive manner. And so that felt like a really good way to distinguish between this kind of journey that she's on where these kind of remnants and flashbacks of the abusers keep in interrupting her attempt to use her first love as a band-aid for all things. And so the kind of the the way that those things are incongruent really helped tell that story. Sure. That's really remarkable because I feel like uh, dance, I tell people all the time, is like my favorite performing art to watch uh, specifically for that reason. Yeah. And that I think, I feel like it's... Uh, more precise in its way than languages. Like language is always a, like a kind of a clumsy instrument in order to convey the human experience and, um, and, and just in general, you know, life is more complex than angry, sad, yeah, you know, or whatever, you know, but I also feel like that is a remarkably humble thing to admit for a writer. Um, I mean, like I, I feel like in general, uh, it doesn't it doesn't make me any better of a writer or like you know accelerate my trajectory to pretend that there are things that you know that language can capture all things like it's actually something that comes up in my work a lot like the poetry collection which I just finished um, called this is the after which is like the companion to made to dance um, as I was working on it over the last year uh, during the, the pandemic with my editor, um, there were poems where I'm like, this isn't doing enough work even on the page to hold what it's talking about. And so we ended up, I ended up working with this amazing graphic designer in uh, Malaysia, of all places, who did some really innovative like text image art with some of the poems because just the pay, the words on the page weren't enough. Um, and it feels really exciting because like the way you experience the poems um, affects your breath. It affects your like kind of your body, which feels exciting to be able to do on a on paper, um, which is kind of the same thing that we do in theater. Right. The physical manifestation of how we say the lines, what emotional state we're in, what's at stake for us affects the way the audience receives the story that we're trying to tell. Right. And so I'm always looking for ways to innovate and form and mess with that convention and also continue to comment on the fact that like. There are some things that no matter how much you talk about them, no matter how much you find, you know, a $5 word or a $50 word, the experience in your chest ripping open um, doesn't go away. Right. But hold on to that thought and we will be right back with Anya Pearson. Compassion, the desire to help. It's part of Portland's DNA. It's also at the heart of what Central City Concern does every day. Last year, they helped over 13,000 people experiencing or at risk for homelessness get back on track, providing health care, 
housing, and employment opportunities. But they can't do it alone. Go to their website at centralcityconcern.org to learn how you can be part of the solution. And we're back with Voices from the Real World and Anya Pearson. It was interesting what you were saying about the um, how Made to Dance uh, kind of broke apart, the, like the well-made play structure, you know, the, the rising action to a climax and all that. Like, you know, it, it did it did it did its job very differently. Yeah. You know, because um, I feel like uh, we're going to start seeing more and more of that. You know, and um, and I and I feel like I, I'm seeing more and more playwrights, especially you know, in my opinion, uh, I feel like I was seeing more and more women playwrights who are like taking that and inside like like this this one way of telling the story um, is not the most active, most dynamic, most accurate way to tell the story anymore. Yeah. And it's because, like, life is not linear, right? So, like, this idea that we've been handed down since the Greeks that, like, there is one right way to tell a story. It always has to be the hero's journey. It always has to have these plot points and this formula. Um, that, like, let's be real. That comes out of a Western colonized perspective of what makes a good story. And so the more that playwrights of color, the more that just writers of color are getting a seat at the table, they're like, no, that's not the way I experience life. And that's not the way that I want to tell the stories that resonate with me. Right. You know, and so I feel it's really exciting to me that we're starting to pull apart those binaries and explode them and say, why? Why mm-hmm. is it that that the only play that is worthwhile in the kind of canonical estimation is one that is told in that European style? Right. Yeah. And so and so here you are. But uh yeah. made the dance as 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 you know since then has only been like one step on the journey. Yeah. And now uh there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on. Yeah. Um uh it's like when I I was, <laughs> was going through your bio, you know, it was like novel, documentary, and I I know personally of a of a new play that you're working on. And can, can you tell me some of all the projects that you're working on? Yes, I can. Um so I am writing a novel. That is the one that I don't know the most about right now. It's still very... Give a title. Nice. I don't. I don't even know what it's going to be. It might not even be a novel. It's very exciting. I have 100 pages of something. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I'm obsessed right now with Ocean Vong. Um, they're one of my favorite writers. Uh, and their novel, On Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous, is kind of like the... The beacon that I'm following, because it, again, talking about exploding uh, structure, that novel and a a lot of novels that are being written now are not told in a traditional, like the plot and the action are the things that move the novel along. Um, The way Ocean's novel is structured is these emotional intensity moments of kind of like fictionalized reality or fictionalized accounts from their life um, are what strings the novel together. So it's not told in a linear way. It's not like a cliffhanger at the end of each chapter. It's definitely not um, kind of uh, of the making of commercial fiction. So that feels really exciting, potentially, to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I You'll like this, Mr. Cowboy Shirt. Uh, I wrote a football pilot. It is um, basically like House of Cards uh, no meets... Kidding. Uh, Friday Night Lights, yes, it's about uh, the world of professional football, kind of behind the scenes, what it means to occupy that world, how the teams get put together, um, and it's the story of a, a female who is want, wants to be the first female GM in the NFL. Right. So at the moment, I'm working on the Bible and the pitch packet uh, to send out Great. to go with that. 
Uh, like I said, I just finished a book of poetry, so I've been submitting that to poetry contests and poetry presses. Uh, that is in tandem with Made to Dance. And what's the name of your book of poetry? It is called This is the After. Okay. Um, and then uh, I am working on a play for Princeton, um, which is about the state of the educational system. Wait a second. Portland. I haven't brought it up yet. <laughs> Why are you working on a play for Princeton? Uh, I am very blessed and humbled to be one of the five Hotter Fellows for this academic year, which means um, Princeton is generously supporting me financially to create a new play. Boom. That is so amazing. So very, very proud of you. Uh, did you, did you. Did you apply for that or did you just come find you? No, I applied for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what, what did you turn in? Um... So in the like kind of submission festival grants residency kind of I do a lot of submitting that's part of the hustle of being a writer is a lot of your time is sent um is spent submitting stuff um and so for that application I had to kind of give them a pitch of what I would work on for the duration of the fellowship I had to submit some writing samples and then I talked a lot about how much activism means in my art making and um that seemed to really resonate with them. Right. Um, and before we leave it, your book of poetry. Yes. Uh, are the poems around a specific theme, or how is that? Uh, w- what's the organizing principle yeah, behind that? Um, so, like I said, it's a companion to Made to Dance. Um, it's actually Jamie was so instrumental in that because as we were shaping what the f- the play ultimately became, um, she very empathetically but brutally cut a lot of poems out of the show because <laughs> she was like this doesn't work but she's like don't throw it away the writing is beautiful put all of these things aside she's a sweetheart but, but empathy with brutality is totally her directing style I mean that's Jamie <laughs> yeah. and, and in the nicest of ways yes, because yes. she's definitely brilliant um and so she was like, put them all away. Don't throw them away. M- write a book of poetry someday with all of these. And so that was kind of the beginning. Did you say that? Yeah. Oh, no. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and so it is also about... Um, so basically, my one of my mentors is Lydia Yuknovich, who is an amazing writer who lives here in um, Oregon. And... Um, one of, she talks a lot about primary metaphors, like the things that keep coming up in your work and the things that you keep writing around, even if you're talking about it from like side angles or a back door. Um, but the things that, you know, you, you're obsessed with. And for me, one of them is what, how do I come back from such a horrific experience? Because it has been such a marker of my life, especially, um, just in general, it's, it is profoundly affected me, as it does every person who has experienced tremendous violence. And so the collection is at once about like this 20-year journey of how I got to where I am now, which is far better than where I was at first. Um, but it also, on top of that, there's another layer of kind of the young self and the old self being in dialogue with each other and like looking back and looking forward and interrogating the language, interrogating the language I used to use to describe my experience, interrogating kind of societal language. Like when people say, oh my God, I was so traumatized. They didn't have soy milk at the store. You know, like the way that that kind of lessens the weight of the experience of what it means to be a survivor. Um, so that's in there too, kind of an interrogation of words and why we use them and what meaning they bestow. Um, and then also, like, 
It goes off into many other directions, like what does it mean to be a black woman in America in 2020 or in 2016 when 45 was getting elected? What does it mean to be a black person in Portland trying to make theater? What does it mean to... Um, you know, go through a divorce during a pandemic. All of that stuff is is in the collection. Wow. Yeah. That sounds like a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you were telling me beforehand that you had written something for PCS. Yeah. So, um, ironically, all four of us that were commissioned for the Play at Home project last year through PCS are all in Limestorm. So shout out to my Limestorm gals. Um, uh, PCS commissioned Josie Seed, Sarah Gina Cardi, um, E.M. Lewis, and myself to write um, these short plays. All badasses. Yeah. All badasses. No hey, question Limestorm's about it. Limestorm's killing it in the world right now. Um, uh, basically, when the pandemic first happened and all of theaters shut down, there was this initiative that was started on the East Coast that basically was like, we want to give playwrights work. So um, the the kind of stipulation was write a 10 minute play that anyone can perform in their house. Um, and we will commission as many playwrights across the country as we can and involve as many theaters as we can. And so we were all, we were the four that were selected from PCS. Um, and that was kind of the only stipulation. And so from that, I wrote this play called Three Love Songs, which was just about, again, giving language, trying to name the experience of what it felt like to be alive last year at the pandemic. And when the pandemic first happened, when all of our contracts were being canceled. We didn't know what the future held, what it was like to have a child who I couldn't explain what was going on in the world to because I couldn't even explain it to myself, you know. And um, also, it was right after uh, George Floyd. So there was a lot of racial reckoning that was happening in this country. So it was about reckoning with that as well. And um, and this really beautiful piece came out of it. So I was I, I felt very privileged to be asked and then very privileged by the way it was received. And you're going to share a little piece with us now. Do you want to give us um, like a, con a context for it real quick? Yeah. So um, after we all wrote the plays, the other stipulation was that they asked us to make a video of it being read. And it could just be like with members of your family or, um, you know, over Zoom. And because I am who I am and I'm crazy and ridiculously ambitious, I was like, how can I make this the hardest on myself possible? And the answer was, let me ask 30 of my friends from all different parts of the country uh, to record snippets that spoke to them. If you live by yourself and are experiencing loneliness that feels bone breaking, come in. If you live with others and loneliness still feels like a physical ache, you come into. If you are choking on platitudes, if you are tired of hearing we're all in this together, or things will go back to the way they were, or if you are afraid that this will come to be true, because while you realize there is no going back, you know that those who monetize the status quo will try to force feed us normalcy like some syrupy medicine that none of us need. Y'all come on in. If you are an essential worker and you are out there risking your life and you see someone at the beach on the news and you privately have a violent thought, but as a good person, you just say it quietly to yourself. You come in too. I will say that thought out loud for you once you come inside. If you have lost anyone during this moment to anything, you come on in too. 
If you have lost anyone and it still sneaks up on you accidentally or on purpose, when you hear a particular song or smell a particular smell and you call up their memory and suddenly you find yourself in tears, you come into. If you are forgetting the mechanism of breath and your nervous system is out of whack and you're awake until 4 a.m. binge watching shows and then sleeping all day, come on in. If you are awake all night binge watching shows and then your kid wakes you up at 7 a.m., you come in and just take a nap. If what hurts most is that you now realize how much you are unseen by the people who you need most to see you, come in and be seen. Do you want to give me more, uh, tell me more about three love songs? Um, I, very similar to, to Made to Dance. Um, I, I just, I feel so humbled by the way that my work gets received by people, which again, even feels squidgy to say, I, cause I, I want the work to stand on its own. But, um, Willamette Week called it the best thing to come out of the wreckage of 2020. It was, uh, their, best new play of 2020. Um, and multiple people told me, again, very similar to Made to Dance, how much it spoke to their experience during the pandemic, the fear of the unknown, um, just kind of the paralysis that a lot of us were experiencing at the beginning of the pandemic. And it was a real turning point for me in terms of my ability to generate work during the pandemic. Because for the first, I don't know how it was for you, but for the first like three months, I couldn't do anything but just like be a ball of tears on the floor. Um, and I was in the middle of a show. The show got canceled mid run. I'd hurt my back. There was so much going on and I couldn't, I couldn't watch anything. I couldn't read anything. I just could not um, experience the world the way I normally do, which is through storytelling. That's the way I navigate. Um, and that being asked to write that play was the first time that I was able to kind of put some language to what I was experiencing. Mm -hmm. Um, and to then hear that it was also resonating with what of a lot of, what a lot of other people were experiencing was a very profound encouragement. And then after that, I was able to write this pilot and write this collection of poetry and begin to generate, but also honoring that there are still days where I can't do a single thing and I cannot get out of bed because we're, I was about to cuss, but I'm not going to, because we're still kind of not out of this. You know, you and have that's days terrifying. where you can't get out of bed. Yes, <laughs> I, I, I would not have guessed that. I would not. Oh have my guessed god! Because you have been in hustle mode for so long now. I'm. I'm glad. It makes me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> but see, that's the thing. Like, um, in the last year and a half, I have learned how much rest is not only revolutionary, but how much it is restorative in terms of allowing me to be more generative and more focused. So if I honor the part of myself that is like, today is not a day that I can get anything done because the world is on fire still, you know, um, or because I'm, you know, dealing with a divorce or I have a kid who can't is having trouble adjusting to school again because they just kind of got thrown back into the fire, you know. Um, it's very human. And so by allowing myself to acknowledge the authenticity of how hard it is to be alive right now, it kind of gives me the space to know that the words will come when I need them to come. Wow. Uh, Anya Pearson, we are just about at our time. 
Um, I want to say thank you so, so much for coming in. Thank you for all your brilliance. Thank you for all your hustle. I, I, I meant it at the beginning. It has been a real pleasure as somebody you know who's been friends with you, who's fought with you, who's worked <laughs> with you, who's created with you, uh, and watching your trajectory. Um, and I got to say, not a bit of it has felt like luck. Thank you. you. Know, um, and uh, uh, I appreciate your humility because I don't know how much longer you'll be able to hold on to it, <laughs> you know, um, because, but, you know, that's because you've been going out there and doing the work. So, you know, well done. Thank you, well Bobby. Done. Can I just plug two more things really plug quick? Plug away. Um, so I'm also working on a play about women who play professional poker with uh, Jessica Wallenfels and Many Hats. Um, and I am working on the prequel. Oh, right. The Right, the Killing Fields. The prequel to the Killing Fields uh, at Portland Center Stage. Right on. Yeah. Like, you know, it's funny because you were talking about like, you know, and I have these hundred pages that I don't know what to do with. I'm like, she's just sitting down and making that up as you go. So, like, okay, and I know, I know what I just said. How, like, what does a typical day in the life of Anya look like? Like, where do you find the time to put all these words down on paper? Uh, I mean... Uh, a typical day involves like working on multiple projects simultaneously, uh, kind of flitting back and forth, but in the best of ways uh, between creative impulses, uh, being a single mom, um, working for a writing center, uh, and also the moments of sheer terror where I'm in the bed under my weighted blanket uh, watching sports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anya put me on front street earlier with the Cowboys reference. Yeah, um, she's a shameless Warriors fan. I want to put point that out. Uh, I am a very proud Warriors yeah, fan yeah. and a proud Forty Niners fan. Yeah, here we go. Hence here why we go. I don't All like right, the enough, enough. All right, thank you, thank you, Anya Pearson. Um, that's a wrap. Thanks for having me. And that is it for this edition of Voices from the Real World. Real people telling their real stories. Thank you, Anya Pearson. And of course, thank you to our production team, Jamie M. Ray, Lion Producer, Robert A.K. Gagno, Sound Engineer. Christopher Hart is our recording engineer from the Willamette Radio Workshop, stepping in for Sam Mowry. And all this is done in Portland, Oregon, um, which exists on the traditional lands of Monoma, Kaflamet, Clackamas, Tumwater, the Malala bands of the Chinook peoples, the Tualatin band of the Kalapuya peoples, and many other tribes who made their homes along the Columbia River. We acknowledge and honor the ancestors and survivors of this place and recognize that we are here because of the sacrifices forced upon them. And we honor their descendants who live on. And I am Bobby Bermea. And thank you for joining us for Voices from the Real World. To hear more podcasts, go to profiletheater.org slash on air where you'll find other episodes of Satellite Beyond the Page and Voices from the Real World. If you have feedback or suggestions for me, I'm taking all comers. Write me at BobbyB at profiletheater.org. One love and peace out. <laughs>